When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget English, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Adam Wyatt, an award-winning poet, playwright, and essayist living in Dublin. We'll be discussing his latest poetry collection that has the very intriguing title, About Blank and was published by Salmon Poetry in October of 2021. Welcome, Adam. Uh, First, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to this poetry project. Um, Yeah, so as you said, I'm uh, living in Dublin. I've been, I'm from England originally, um, but I've been here sort of more than half my life now, which is kind of amazing. It's a weird in-between kind of moment to be in in some ways. But um, so I've been writing poetry predominantly. My first book came out in 2011, my first collection, Silent Music. Um, And then after that, I was still continuing very much writing poetry, but I also started writing plays as well. And this is my my fifth book, my third collection. And I guess it was like, you know, rock bands talk about the difficult third album, and this may be sort of the difficult third uh, collection in that I wanted to try and do something different and I suppose because of my interests in essay writing and and playwriting I wanted to try and incorporate those into a book um, and really just delve into something in fact I remember I was teaching creative writing once and I was saying to the people there saying like you know a book it can look like anything it doesn't have to be like the, the books we see in shops all the time you know like you know we have the sort of the genres of the short story poetry you know and the novel um and not a lot in between, you know, but a book can, there's no rules on what a book can look like. And it kind of, after I said that, it kind of struck me as thinking, oh yeah, that's quite interesting, you know, that a book can be anything. So I wanted to create something much kind of bigger and broader with this, but still be very poetical in its shape in the sense of metaphorical. Um, And I, and like I say, kind of incorporate these interests I've had in Celtic mythology and psychology and and that sort of thing. Um, Right. Yeah. Thanks so much for that answer. Um, I think that's one of the most interesting things about uh, the the book is that it, it weaves together so many different uh, genres. But just to back up a little bit to the title of the um, the book, uh, the phrase about blank actually refers to a message most of us have probably received in our computer browser address bar. Um, that means you're viewing like an empty page. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that phrase as a title? Yeah, well, it it started off as a sort of, you know, you have these working titles and it was a bit of, it was a bit of a joke, really. It wasn't going to be, you know, and I just, I I like the sound of it. I like the look of it as well, that it's kind of one word and you have this colon in between, you know, about blank and had a sort of lovely symmetry to it um, and a nice sound to it. Um, which is always sort of the first thing that attracts me, I suppose. But he, but then just this idea, yeah, that this slow loading web browser, which is often the case, you know, and uh, it's that kind of thing that is there that we all get, and yet we don't really pay any attention to it. So there's sort of, so it took on that significance. And then also within the work, there's um, kind of references to cybernetics and technology 
And in fact, there's one part um, where, in fact, this happened only recently. It didn't make it into the audio version of this book because it was turned into an audio immersive piece. But in the printed version, when one of the characters collapses, um, kind of crashes, um, my computer crashed last year and it completely like broke down. It just stopped. And this intriguing text came up and it had like all these um, strange words. Let me just see. I mean, like, and it, so it became this kind of, uh, what do you call it? Found poem that I just kind of stuck in. It said things like verbose mode, startup, optimistic warning, too many couples being created, chain mask mismatch, Darwin bootstrapper, um, optimistic dad, couldn't block sleep, legacy slip, unsupported client, terminate, channel changed, promiscuous mode made, uh, you know, so I had all these, so that became a sort of, so I stuck that in the book, you know, so I suppose there's elements as well within the book of this sort of fractured consciousness and I suppose surfing the internet and I'm conscious as well, like I'm someone as a writer that does have, I know like you hear, especially novelists who turn off the internet when they're writing, but I'm, you know, I have it on all the time and it's, you know, and I get distracted and I'm suddenly on Facebook or something like that, you know, and, um, and yet I use it as well as a resource, of course, for Wikipedia and, you know, whatever sort of stuff I might be researching. Um, so I guess it's kind of picking up maybe on this new state of consciousness we all find ourselves in. Sorry, it's a very long way of answering what it's called about blank. No, but that's really, it's fascinating the way that, you know, you see all these different influences because you do often think of, you know, a, a poet or a novelist shutting themselves up in a hotel room. I think Toni Morrison often, often talked about, you know, checking yourself into a hotel and like not having internet or anything. But it's, I think what really comes through in um, about blank is this this sense of being over almost overwhelmed by different kinds of media and different kinds of yeah. influences, especially when you have those sections where you have you know words printed kind of over words or so partially covering words. But it's fascinating that that came from that your computer generated some of that like accidentally as well. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so you've called it like you've elsewhere you've called this poetry collection uh, quote genre fluid shape shifting piece which weaves together a series of interconnected narratives moving across poetry monologue and dialogue and you also note how your work is influenced by uh, your experiences playing percussion instruments and how you see this common thread between uh, playing music and imaginative writing so I'm wondering if you talk um, kind of Explain maybe what the through line that you see between music and poetry is specifically that you're maybe trying to establish. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm interested in patterns of sound uh, and, you know, how how the connections, you know, I mean, poetry is very much about musicality and the sounds of words and all of those things that go together. And you've got, you know, poetry is connected, of course, to rhyme and it's the memorable elements that go into it and so I was really sort of wanting to tap deeper into that aspect and of things that I find interesting in literature and um, when it comes to style and music and how do you I, I was trying to bridge that kind of that gap I suppose between not going too surreal and crazy with language but while at the same time allowing the music to be there, but also allowing access points. So it's not kind of that people are invited into the work and, and playing again with those shifting modes. And I guess, um, yeah, before I started writing, I used to play percussion instruments. Um, and the last instrument I started playing was the tabla, which was only found, only found out recently was invented by an Indian poet. And the tabla is like the talking um, kind of drum. So, so I do see that relationship between rhythm and, um, the, the musicality, um, the, you know, that goes with language. Uh, sorry, what was, what, does, was that answer your question? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, that, um, and did, <clears throat> like, I'm interested just because there is the audio immersive component. Did you envision that as part of your like process, or did you was that something you had in mind as you as you wrote? I guess it came later. It's something. It's something. I, the first thing I thought about because I was. First of all, it's because it's not your usual, like the normal looking poetry collection is kind of usually page long poems. Sometimes, you know, you might have a longer sequence or something like that. But generally, you know, you have a page long poem and at a reading, 
you read a few poems and you know that's it and I thought well how am I going to read this because it's like um a much longer piece you know it comes in at I don't know it's over 100 pages and it's you know moves across even though I, I wanted to break this this logical linearity in, in kind of storytelling, it very, in a way it is a linear piece that you do kind of really need to read from beginning to end to, to fully understand. I mean, you could pick it up in other places as well, but there is a kind of through line with it. Um, so, oh, sorry, I've missed your, oh, got your question now. How, oh, so the, it was that idea. I was reading, yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. So then reading, so first of all, I thought, I was thinking of Laurie Anderson and what she does, which I really like, how she uses kind of voice distortion and then kind of ambient music. Uh, so I thought about that and I actually got this voice transformer thing. And then I realised, well, I'm not a performer, you know, I'm not, I have no acts of trading. So I thought, this isn't going to work. So then I thought, I wondered if I could approach actors and, and uh, sound designers to see if we could do something. And COVID arrived, and so I, I reached out to uh, a guy I've worked with before, a friend, Cormac O'Connor, who did the sound design on, on my first play, Hang Up, and he's got, we, we have a very, you know, we, we have similar kind of cultural, you know, we both like Radiohead and we both like David Lynch, so we have a, a great shorthand, in, in, you know, in, when we're kind of working on things. So we started working together, and then I re- reached out to Owen Ferreira, brilliant actress here, and Owen Rowe, who I greatly admire. And so that's it. so it just kind of started in lock. And I was very lucky in a way because it was lockdown; all these actors were out of work, so they were free. You know, because normally they, these guys, you know, Owen's and Owen are sort of top actors in Ireland, and uh, you know, to, to, so it was wonderful. I was able to get them, and so it just kind of started like that, and and uh, you know, and then we started developing it from there really right yeah that's yeah it's amazing that as you say the lockdown kind of created an unusual situation because the the actors are so so well known and Olin Fourier in particular is is so well known for like some performances of Joyce Um, Mm. I remember her uh, I think back in River Run was it yeah River Run Mm. was amazing Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the she, yeah. She's she's fantastic, and she's like it was, it was such a joy when you're working with actors like that. It, it was like a because and she was like recording it on her phone, and like she'd go into a, I don't know if she was going into a cupboard or something, and but it was like it had this fantastic sound, and her presence in the piece is more ethereal and otherworldly anyway, so it really fitted with it, and was in contrast to Owen Rowe, who had a much more professional studio home setup because he does a lot. A lot of actors do voiceovers and that sort of thing. Um, so, but that worked. So, all those things really worked. But it was amazing because she would just like send me, you know, she'd WhatsApp me these pieces she'd done, and they were just like just incredible. And it was like so there was very little direction on my part, you know, because my, you know, the first they were saying, you know, is there a particular style you want and that sort of thing? And I said, well, look, let's follow your nose first and just and we can kind of take it from there but they were pretty much you know spot on with all of it so it was yeah just a real joy to to, to work with actors like that right I think especially it works so well considering so much of the poem is almost uh unconscious thoughts of two characters in in Dublin which we'll come back to that in a second but I want to just again maybe back up to some of the front matter um, I was intrigued by how many epigraphs you had because it's pretty common in some um, books. But I was intrigued by the, by the number. You know, had like Virginia Woolf, Italio Calvino, Franz Kafka, Clarice Lispector. I'm just wondering uh, the, about the choice to include all of them and kind of how you made those selections or how you see those. I'll tell you why I did that, it, and actually because I know there's yeah there's a lot there. And perhaps I had to cut. I, well, for one thing, I love connect uh, collecting quotes and and quotes that connect to the work um but the reason i had so many here you know for instance i mean the first one is kafka talking about you know you don't have to leave your room remain sitting at your table and listen do not even listen simply wait be quiet still and solitary the world will freely freely offer itself to you to be unmasked it has no choice it will roll in ecstasy at your feet and then virginia wolf talks about the collaboration between the woman and the man before the art of creation can be accomplished some marriage of opposites has to be consummated. Um, so there's lots. So the reason I put them in is that I didn't want, and perhaps I should have, I don't know, but I decided not to 
I suppose a bit like Joyce didn't put any kind of, at the end of the book, he didn't put any references or notes or anything like that. And so I haven't with this book. So the quotes at the, at the start of the book are kind of, I hope, pointers for people who might want to read a bit deeper into it and see where some of the inspiration and things come from. So, yeah, you've got a lot of mon- modernist writers there like Kafka and uh, Virginia Woolf, and you've got a quote from Carl Jung. Um, James Hillman, this depth psychologist, talks about the alchemy of language. Uh, Clarice Lispector, um, you know, talking about death. And then and then also another psychologist talking about the rise of the feminine. So there's a, a lot of those are sort of clues into what the book is kind of about, <laughs> the blank <laughs> that it's about. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. And it, it works, I think, really well with the, the kind of setup that you create in the book between like your, I think you have a good sense of almost at least in the, in the, some of the, um, the way you're speaking about the book is like, you have some sense of what, what you're trying to do or the philosophical way that you're conceiving of the, the book, but then also there's a lot of elements of the unconscious or you're really interested in the way the unconscious uh, filters through so I was interested particularly in um, you've mentioned that you're like you've talked a little bit about your process of composition before as a kind of like unconscious writing or speed writing where you, where you allow your unconscious to wander and then go back and put the the structure on on those jottings later. Um, so you also say something about like uh, how it's you're allowing something spontaneous and mysterious to occur, which kind of reminded me, of course, of like famously like Wordsworth's. Uh, description of his poetry as the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions recollected in tranquility. So I'm thinking about like where you see, or, or also it reminded me of um, you know Yeats's wife and automatic writing almost. So I'm wondering like if you could talk a little bit more about that process and maybe how you've been influenced by uh, romantic poetry or surrealism. Yeah, I think very much. I mean, I think for me, romantic poetry and surrealism are two kind of huge points of inspiration. Um, and so, yeah, I have this document on my computer. In fact, after my first collection came out, I started it and it was called Write Rubbish Speed Writing. And it was like this place where I would just limber up, you know, because in fact, it's one of the exercises I do when I teach creative writing is the speed writing exercise. And it's a private thing where you just allow people just to write as fast as they can. And it's a process to just kind of unload on the page to free up the imagination and I guess it'd be like, you know, limbering up before, you know, before you played a sports game, you'd have to warm up, you know, so it's kind of a warm up. But I was like, as I had this document, I, I sort of became more fascinated by what was coming through. And then I started using these pieces and and, and, and working on them. Um, and yeah, and, and I'm, yeah, I'm interested in those surrealist techniques, you know, of collage writing and what they would call automatic writing and just kind of following your nose in, in, in that way. And um, so that's how a, a lot of the work is is produced in this kind of very spontaneous way. And for me, I suppose it's getting into, it is, and that Wordsworth, I've been connecting with that recently, actually, that Wordsworth quote, which is, which I've known for a long time, but it is um, that overflow of powerful emotions, you know, and that's, I guess that's something I'm interested in capturing in writing is, is about the feelings we have of being alive, you know, and, but perhaps the feelings that we're not so aware of all the time or that are there, but we don't quite know how to access. Um, and I guess this is nothing new. This is what I suppose a lot of art and literature is, is attempting to do. But so, so it's about kind of, you know, yeah, digging deeper and going through those things and there's a sort of, and again, this is a bit like music, you know, how does a musician, a composer know when they've got something, you know, it's, it's a sort of feeling and a hunch that, that there's something being expressed, which is doing something, you know, and I'm, and I'm interested in, in, those, in those moments more than I would be, because I, I would love to be like a JK Rowling and have, an, you know, have the whole of Harry Potter in my head, you know, the whole novel, and then be able to just write it down. But that's just not, how it works for me. I mean, I have ideas, but I think if I then sat down to try and write it out, the, the writing would just get very, I just get very bored and tired. And there has to be something going on in, in the writing itself that's kind of 
pushing me along and and in a sense that I don't know what's going to happen so I'm so I'm following that mystery and I'm trying to work out what, you know what it is so it has become this you know deeper psychological kind of investigation in many ways um and then dreams are very important as well and that, that I've been doing more dream work recently and so the way I wrote this was using uh kind of like dream work techniques where so if an image occurred like if you dream about something you then question you you try and unpack that image and and its associations and memories and things like that so i used the images in this in that kind of archetypal way and that became the sort of method for the piece for for kind of the through line to work out what was happening and that was that was very interesting and sort of um <laughs> very revealing and um yeah it was just just a, just a very interesting way of of working on something right that's fascinating because i think i think that um it's interesting to hear that that's that process of like uncon accessing the unconscious or like keeping kind of a more automatic writing or free writing uh type um method that is not just specific to this poetry collection but just your work in general um it's, it's similar to, the, I think, the way a lot of people write. Some people, like you say, J.K. Rowling has a sense of where the plot is going or kind of what, what she's writing towards the whole of the the piece. Um, I was interested in the dream thing as well. So do you, is by dream work, do you mean that you're like recording your own dreams, like keeping a dream journal type thing yeah, that you're working yeah, I, on? I've, yeah, I've start, yeah, I've started to do that. I mean, none of the dream work is in this, but... but um... I, you know, I have been writing down my dreams for the last couple of years. Um, so, um, and then kind of, you know, using kind of Jungian techniques to kind of understand them, you know, and I think there is that, you know, it's a big connection between um, dreams and, and literature, you know, and in and, and that, you know, so I discovered as well, like a lot of this, so, so you know, it, one of the Jungian techniques is a thing called active imagination, where you begin a kind of dialogue with a character in your dream, if you wanted to try and understand them or, or, or an image even. Um, and so that was something I was kind of naturally doing within About Blank before I even knew it, you know. And that's something we, something writers do all the time, of course, because if you're creating characters and they're talking to each other, now these characters, if they're invented, if they're fictional, they're in your head. So that, in a way, is already a form of of active imagination, um, and so yeah. So it's it's so I suppose it's being aware of that, and so it brings a sort of allegorical element, I suppose, to to what about blank is, um, yeah. And and you know, I'm, I guess I'm I'm interested in a lot of those allegorical kind of elements. You know, uh, the story, the other story within the story, as it were. Um, Right, and you use a lot of um, mythology as well. Um, you make kind of reference to the four parts of About Blank that are oblique references to the seasonal festivals in, in Irish mythology, Imbolic, which is today, obviously, and Bridges Day. Um, yeah, and then Beltuna, the first summer, Lunasa, and Samhain. Uh, do you want to say a little bit more about that structure? Yeah, so it's framed, yeah, in those four parts as well, you, you, using those four major Celtic seasonal festivals. And so that was just, um, that's that's part of it as well. So the book begins um, with Samhain and, you know, Samhain, Halloween, it's those gaps between this world and the other world. So it opens on that, and that's the Celtic New Year as well. So it starts in those things. So I was mo- trying to move through those elements and use nature in that kind of way. Um, and then the second part is this piece, which is a dramatic monologue called Yoga for Beginners. And that's in bulk, because that's what we're stepping into now. And it's very much an interior monologue um, of someone sort of working out their thoughts. And I just thought, as well, I was interested in those sort of meeting points in, in philosophy as well, between East and West, and this sort of yoga, you know, that word for binding together, like religion, the word religion, you know, and sort of so bringing back those two, bringing together those two elements and this sort of, you know, for me it was about going into that unconscious, going into that element that has perhaps been pushed down and sort of giving and, and seeing that rise. That's the sort of idea behind the movement of it, that it kind of moves through this invisible 
underworld and that underworld starts to rise and, and, and come up through through the book so the voice in yoga for beginning beginners is the kind of beginning of that um and trying to make some sort of sense of this um of the shadow of the interior of, of what this other thing that, that perhaps is inside us that we're not so aware of um and that so that and that became that was sort of both a personal thing, but also then going into but Celtic mythology being like I said, I mean, these myths, they come from the unconscious. They're all archetypal, you know? Um, and I just find Celtic mythology and all the myths just very rich. Um, so using, using those aspects um, became sort of part. I'm, I'm kind of like a magpie as well. When I work, you know, when I'm working on something, it's like you're on the Quivive and you're listening like 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 I picked like when my computer crashed that ended up being part of the book, you know. So I might be reading things and I go, ah, oh, you know that that fits with what I'm doing, you know, and, and sort of, um, and so that kind of works its way into the work, perhaps, or it might it might or it might not, you know. You try sometimes you again it's a kind of it's a musical balance and aesthetic that I was trying to achieve with the work that you're sort of you might stick something in and it might it doesn't sit properly. There's something wrong about it. You know, you can't just crowbar anything in. There has to be, you know, it has to sort of speak and communicate in some kind of shape or form. And so it's, so it's kind of, and so it's just kind of finding that balance with it, which is imagistic and musical. It has to sort of work within and feel right. And that can be interesting as well, because then you're surprising yourself all the time and it leads you down other even if it, even if it doesn't stay in, it might lead on to some other idea or something that you're kind of working towards. So it's kind of it's it's trusting your intuition, I suppose, in many ways. Which again, like you say, it's nothing new in creativity. I mean, Pinter worked very much like this. You know, he was so, and yet he wouldn't use any of these language, uh, or none of this language of sort of psychology or myth or anything like that. But I find his work so mythic. But he just was, he was just very connected to. Uh, his unconscious, you know, and he was able to sort of delve into those parts and, and eloquently express that, you know, through a language which just had, you know, great resonance and reach. Um, right. Yeah. And that's fascinating, especially since most of about blank is set in these more urban Dublin scenes. And I think with, with the structure and the reference to uh, Celtic mythology, it gives a sense that there of the underlying structures and the underlying beliefs maybe that are uh, underneath urban yeah. landscapes. And particularly in Ireland, there's, there's a, like Dean Shanachus is this uh, part of this kind of uh, literature from Irish mythology and it's Dean Shanachus is the law or the power of place. And so that became a big part of it as well with like Dublin and, and what, you know, Dublin is, uh, you know, dark pool it means. And so all those things take all. I'm interested in the etymology of words and all those things, and so all of that feeds into the the politics of the place and what does that do to the culture and the character and the history and all, all those things. And the island where it's lost its native language and yet it's it's a ghost. It haunts everything as well. It's got its colonial past, the troubles, and all these different things that work its way into um, a cultural identity. Right, and since you bring up all the um, Dublin and the references, the specific references that occur throughout about Blank to Grosvenor Square, Dublin Zoo, Dolphins Barn, Rialto, um, lots of landmarks anyone uh, that's lived in Dublin or is from Dublin would recognize. Uh, also, you, there's, a, I think, a lot of heavy associations with Irish writers like Joyce we've mentioned, but also got maybe more Gothic writers like Bram Stoker, whose home is referenced in the poem. So can you say a little bit about maybe the influence of um, Irish writers, um, either Joyce or anyone else you want to um, bring in here, or even Irish poets? I know there's a lot of um, poetry collections coming out recently that are specifically related to Dublin poets and the associations or poetic depictions of Dublin. So do you want to say a little bit about how that might have influenced about Blink? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I suppose Joyce is an obvious connection in, in that some of this is sort of has those stream of consciousness connections. And I guess if you ever write about Dublin, someone's going to be attached to Joyce. Um, and so there's, it, it, in many ways, I mean, the only 
the main Joycean part of this is really um, the panther, the Black Panther, but, and that connects both to Rilke's Black Panther and Kashigo, Claire goes to goes to Dublin Zoo. I've never been in Dublin Zoo, but Claire goes into Dublin Zoo and she sees a Black Panther. I don't think, I think they may have had a Black Panther there at one stage. I don't think they have one, but in this, there's a Black Panther and she goes to see the Black Panther and there's connections there to Rilke's Black Panther. And Rilke as well was very connected to the unconscious and those things and that panther, that animal becomes a sort of symbol. And then at the beginning of Ulysses, Stephen has a nightmare about a black panther. So that that's the connection, I think, to Ulysses. And um, I guess in this, Dublin is, Dublin, in fact, poet Jessica Train, she introduced the book and she, um, she said that Dublin is a major character in About Blank. And I really like that. And because it is, and it is, Dublin connects to this, this black pool, this underworld, this sea beneath. Well, what is the sea beneath? It's our, it's our unconscious, which is rippling all beneath us. It's recording everything. It's happening. And, and so it's like, it's there, but it's, it's not, you know, it's the invisible world in many ways. So it's, it's trying to capture that part of Dublin. So I suppose then everything kind of seeps into that. And yeah, there's, connections to lots of there's things of, from Celtic romance which I'm referring to there's elements of Celtic mythology and there's sun and moon imagery the wrongs and rights of Grosvenor Square is taken from a Bram Stoker poem called the wrongs of Grosvenor Square which is this kind of <laughs> bourgeois political protest poem um, which actually which is actually about the Grosvenor Square in London but the character in the play mistakes it for the Grosvenor Square and Rath Mines. And that's another interesting thing with it, with Dublin, especially. Um, I mean, Dublin was uh, the second city of the British Empire. And a lot of these English names are still there on the streets, you know, and of course you've got all these Georgian Victorian buildings. Um, so it's, and in Rath Mines, you've got the army barracks as well close by. So, it, it, you know, so you've got, a, so it, you know, even though Ireland has very much forged this new identity from the Celtic revival, you know, and all of that, it's still sort of very married to, you know, connected to its colonial past. So all, all of those things are sort of feeding into the psyche of the work, I suppose, and, and literature becomes a part of that. The Celtic revivalism becomes part of the conversation in Grosvenor Square, where people like Bram Stoker lived and Ella Young uh, lived, who was this um, very quirky kind of, she was one of the part of the revivalists, but she went out to California and really did, you know, she fancied herself as this uh, kind of new age druid. She dressed, dressed in purple robes and this sort of thing. Um, so she sounded pretty cool. So she comes up, but all, all those things uh, feed into it. And then, yeah, and it, it all, all, yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's hard to explain, but look, it's kind of feeding off all, all that history. Um, of Dublin and and my, my experience of Dublin as well, because I'm quite new to Dublin and I'm interested in that, of, of seeing it in another way, of seeing it through a stranger's eyes and and the and those sort of intertextualities and the textures and all those things that you kind of, that, that are there, I suppose. And, and yeah, and, and how it, the piece is also about how history haunts us and how we choose history and, and what, you know, how we choose to see things and how that affects us psychologically. And, you know, if the blind spots that we have and, and those different things that occur, I suppose. In, in Grosvenor Square, the, the play is about a lost daughter as well. And these, the, the couple are painting their railings and they're painting them black. Another symbol, in the, a big symbol in the book is this rose as well. Um, and that, the cat is called Rosie, the lost cat at the beginning. And then you have these roses in the garden. Of course, rose, you know, is this great symbol, you know, a love symbol of art. And, and so that, all those things play into it as well. And this lost daughter, and then this writer next door in the play, who is rather mysterious and rather quiet, but she's writing and how this disturbs the neighbours. And they're haunted by both their missing daughter and also by this writer, there seems to be a kind of connection there. So there's a kind of ghost story happening there, I think, as well. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's that's one thing that uh, about playing captures really well. Like you referenced, you know, Jessica Trainer saying this is a, a Dublin collection collection in a lot of ways. And I think that it, it the one thing that's I mean, I, there's the overt references, obviously, but I think you've described it really well in terms of the ways that you see all these things coming together in terms of like a haunted, you know, post like co- haunted colonial past um, with you know gothic elements of the unconscious, and then also all the influences that are, I suppose, more on the surface of the poem in terms of uh, the the ways that media intervenes in life or the ways that like life in a contemporary city is um, constantly, you're being bombarded with all kinds of sounds and images. Um, so it's, I think that that captures um, contemporary Dublin particularly really well. Um, I mentioned also in your process uh, of revising, because we were talking earlier about your process of composition in terms of uh, the ways that you describe yourself as a kind of magpie, collecting different snippets of, of literature and myth, and um, then also using things like your computer that's generating random words all the time. So how do you, and, and also, I suppose, the unconscious element. So how do you, just, when you go back to revise or put some kind of a structure on it, um, is there is it difficult to intervene or mediate between those unconscious, more unconscious elements and a more conscious sense of what you want to accomplish? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it can be true. I mean, this was, this was something I'd never done before. I'd, I'd never produced a book like this. And there were definitely many moments where I thought, well, this is never going to happen. Or, you know, I didn't know what it was going to be. And it was me just playing around to begin with. I think my writing process is, I, I mean, I describe my writing process being like um, throwing all my toys out of the cot and then trying to assemble them into some semblance of order. So there is this initial kind of thrust and kind of almost vomiting, I guess, onto a page and just, you know, and then, but then it's the, it's the shaping that takes a really long time and polishing and really honing something. And, you know, that goes on for, you know, because I tend to write quite quickly, and I think with poetry and plays, you, it's see a poetry poem is more like a sprint. You know, and a novel is is you know like a marathon. You know, you have to sort of it's a it's a longer slog. But even plays are more like a sprint. Like you hear like Tennessee Williams and Pinter and you know playwrights like that who could write a play. The initial flesh, you know, the they could get the first draft of the play, which will have everything in a few days. You know, and then it might be months or years of of crafting and honing it but you can write it quite quickly. So that's, that's the sort of the process for, for me is, it's really kind of writing fast and just letting things out and then kind of going back and, and really working out what it is, what's being said and, and just paying, you know, a lot of attention to the words and language. And that's what you're, that's what you're doing when you're crafting a poem. You're really, you're after sort of economy of language, you know, not wasting any word and, and having this precision, you know, making sure every word is earning its keep within the music of the piece. So, so those, those are the details for me that are, I'm kind of concerned with, um, that it's, you know, and then of course, paying attention to the metaphors and the symbols and, and drawing those out and things because poetry is, you know, obviously it's a metaphorical language. Um, so that, that's my sort of, you know, my, my way of thinking and writing, I suppose. And yeah, but it was, it was very, I had, you know, huge doubts over over something like this because it was something that I hadn't really seen before. And that's quite scary, you know, when you're, it's exciting because you feel like you're doing something different, but it's also scary because you're like, this could just fall flat on its face. But luckily you do send it to people. And that was really nice working. I mean, actors I just find are so amazing because they love literature and they love work that is kind of, I suppose, open and generous. And although this piece doesn't explain itself, like I don't like tying everything up. I like mystery and I believe mystery is God in many ways. And, um, you know, both literally and, and, and the other way around. But um, and so having the actors kind of enjoy it and get it was... Yeah, you know, so th- those moments were, were, were really nice. 
Sorry, Bridget, does that, I'm rambling oh, yeah. here. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I definitely answered my question. And I think okay. also you highlight really well, I think uh, one thing I was thinking about when I was reading about Blink was the the ways that, I think because maybe your experiences as a playwright might contribute to this, but the ways that it becomes a kind of, at points, um, like an unconscious dialogue between the the two characters you know like it's not and it, in some ways also all the other characters of the novel because it's uh, it's captured really well i think in the audio uh version but you can definitely feel it and when you read it in the poem as well um those kind the the ways that your maybe ex- experiences as a playwright contribute to the sense of movement between voices like you even reading it you could get a sense between the distinct uh, characters their distinct voices without having little tabs that say you know this person says this and this person yeah says that. yeah well yeah. oh, that's great to know yeah because of course yeah w- w- with the audio but apart from the play at the end the, the first part there's no characters you know it's just it's written as, as this, you know as one piece um but yeah like you say there's within part one we Olwyn says some of the lines and Owen says others but you know, obviously their, their names or characters' names aren't put into the text. Um, so it's nice to know that still kind of works within the book, the right. way it's framed as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, also, because this is Bridget's Day, I thought I'd bring up some of the points in the poem. that I, mean, I was interested in your references to, uh, in the poem, there's like the rejected feminine. There's also a reference to internal feminine. Uh, so I was wondering what, what you mean by those terms or why you included them and and maybe how concepts of the feminine inform yeah no that's well that's great i'm so glad you asked that because the, i think the feminine is is so much part of this book you know in, in union psychology in those terms you know you have the shadow you know which are the sort of repressed or sort of feelings we bury you know within us or whatever the taboos and all those things and and then at a deeper level you have the anima which is like the feminine soul or the dream image, uh, you know, uh, within the man and animus within within the woman. And I think, and then I was interested in the sort of the goddess qualities as, as well of, of the Kailok that we have here, the triple goddess, which is connected, I think, to Bridget, you know, in her pagan form. She's now canonized as Saint Bridget, but she was a pagan goddess before she was ever Christianized. Um, and... Yeah, and so, so then I, I guess the deeper part of the shadow was what I was kind of following in this, and I think it was that feminine um, rise of kind of voice and consciousness and spirit, which I saw sort of coming through, um, and I just wanted to go deeper into that and deeper, in, and, you know, that was a real kind of personal journey as well in many ways I've discovered with the book that it 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 only hit me after the book, after I sort of sent it out off finally, the final proofs to the publishers, quite how personal it was as well. And it's sort of in in that psychological element, in that me being a man and being, what, cut off from some feminine part within me, even though I've, you know, I've, I'm not a sort of macho man, I'm not big into those kind of sports. And so I've always, I've always considered myself to be quite connected to my feminine you know, side. Um, and yet, um, I realized I really wasn't in many ways. And so the book became a real personal journey, I think, in that way. And I think there's a collective element as well. I mean, it's interesting that it is Bridget's Day today, and it's now for the first time being recognized as a national holiday in Ireland. Um, you know, and I think there is this real, you know, we, you know, we have this term toxic masculinity, and we've seen some of the, you know, a lot of the damage of certain male individuals of late and all, all all the time i mean it always strikes me it's like it's always men at war isn't it you know and it's it's it's, it's men who are causing so much destruction you know um and so i'm interested in those fe- feminine principles i suppose and what and i think jung was really onto something with with the anima and and that and it's natural as well. Like if you, you know, you spend the first half of your life certainly kind of, you know, becoming yourself, becoming your, your ego identity in many ways. And that means so you naturally push down as a man of the more feminine parts of yourself, um, if you identify as that or whatever. Um, and, and so 
you know, and so the second part of life in, in sort of union terms is that you start to discover uh, those those other aspects of the self, you know. Um, so I'm not sure if any of this makes sense, but so all of those all of those things are sort of playing into it, and then and then I make those connections as well with with Celtic mythology. Um, you know, Jung uses so he sees like four developments of of Jung of anima development, and the first is like Adam and Eve, and that could be seen in part one because the narrator creates Stephen and Claire, so there's like a creation myth there, and then you have within that there's uh, a guy who um, is inspired when he sees a woman on the bus and he's inspired to write poetry. So the the muse is woven within that. Helen of Troy is like the second, you know, second uh, kind of Jungian principle. And then the third, you have Mary, Mother Mary, Christ's, you know, Jesus's mother. Um, And that's represented in Yoga for Beginners. And then the fourth development is Sophia, who represents, yes, the wisdom of Sophia, and she represents consciousness. And that's seen, I think, within the writer who is... And I see it as a sort of she's rising out of this patriarchal world, and there's the, there's the father who's very haunted, and he's trying to hold on to this rational way of being, and yet he's completely haunted by this rejected feminine, and she's just quietly there. And I was really interested that you could have, because I know you know we talk about people being silenced and how women have been silenced for for centuries. Um, but the, what the character has in this is that you can have an, an, a silence which is has a power to it, and, and, and as the writer perhaps has a power, someone who could be sitting quietly and thinking and writing and actually doesn't engage with the debate on, on his turns. And I was interested in and how that could drive him crazy. I remember Stephen Fry, I'm going off here, but I remember Stephen Fry talking about Trump, and he said the best thing we could do is paying no attention because then he wouldn't because it's like he said he was like a monster it's like the more you talk about him he's just growing you know it's like you're giving him food and that's how you feed his ego now of course we had to talk about because the president of the united states you can't but i thought that was like and there was and i could see that because I, I actually and i got often quite political but i posted nothing about john because i i just thought he was it was so you know it was just so wrong on so many levels that it was just like I can't even, it's not even worth engaging with. And that's not to turn off and be apolitical. I mean, I was deeply troubled by both Brexit and um, and Trump. Not because, you know, yes, we have democracy and everyone should have their say. And it's not, you know, that, and I think that's really important. And, um, you know, but it was, it was the, this lurch to the right and how the media played into that and the parallels I saw between sort of 1930s Europe and what was happening here was, you know, was concerning, you know. Um, anyway, I've gone way off now, yeah. but there you are. Oh, well, yeah. I, I love that it all, it all came together at the end when we brought in politics. And that idea, I think, of like the silenced feminine that really, I think, even the trajectory you kind of described, the development throughout the poem and the different stages of the feminine comes through, but not like overtly. I think it's, it's a very like subtle thing that really you know animates and and i think brings out some of the i mean even the the trump things that you were saying you know that the kind of the way that uh about blank is is interested in the the silences or or like amplifying in some ways the the unspoken or the silences of of particularly of city life and of urban life mm, yeah um so how do you feel about um maybe ending uh it's been great chatting to you but maybe we could end yeah. with a Little reading. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite hard to read from because it's quite large pieces. But then, I mean, the, well, the, first of all, the po- the whole collection is, um, or book, is bookended with these two poems. One's called Untitled, which is about an emigre who's just arrived to Dublin. Um, and then it ends on a poem um, about Rumi and about his great relationship he had with his uh, mentor, and then losing him and then kind of finding his own voice and becoming a whirling dervish um, and this, you know, extraordinary mystic as, as we know him. Um, but in the middle, there's a piece actually at the end of part one. And I've read this before. It's beautifully read by Olwyn. Um, but I'll just read this. It's called Clarenvoy. 
And Claire is one of the characters, and Claire Clarity, there's a connection there. And then Envoy is the sort of the ending of a, of, of a poem. So that's the kind of meaning between the title there. So I'll just read this piece. <coughs> Claire Envoy. I remember nothing but a mirror. I know it is a mirror because it hangs on the opposite wall. And when I stand in front of it, a figure looks back and moves as I move, and looks through me as I look into it. But then it opens like a door, and I pass through it. I am walking inside what I thought was a mirror, but is in fact a cupboard door. I am standing inside behind the mirror. I turn around, so I am facing the back of the mirror. I hear footsteps outside. They grow in size, then stop. They too must be looking in the mirror now. They are looking in the mirror at themselves in the mirror, with me looking back behind the mirror. They walk forwards, I walk back. The door opens and they come inside the mirror. I feel their tired breath on me. I squint to find their eyes, but there is no light only the smell of must. I feel about for the dark corners, but my legs give way. Only it is not my legs, it is the floor beneath. I am free falling from a terrible height. There is a faint light that is growing as I fall. The wind rushes past, the dark air grows thick as it slides into me. I find it hard to breathe. I see a hand holding a light, and attached to the hand is a long arm, and attached to the long arm is a torso, and attached to the torso is a neck and a head. The head gets bigger and bigger, and then I see a whole figure is standing inside the mirror. It is dark, very dark, but the deeper I look into it, the more I see, and the less I fall. Very soon I will open my mouth and say something. So that's that. Brilliant. Thank you so much for reading that. That, that, that was one of my favorite parts of that. And I do quite like the, the immigrant poem at the beginning. Uh, but thank you so much for reading that. It was lovely. Thanks, Bridget. Thank you.